0: Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home addition, maybe even an addition on that addition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.
1: Hello. I'm Zannie minton The Economist's Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to Editor's Picks. I've chosen three highlights from this week's paper for you to listen to on the go. These stories will let you know what's happening in the world right now, and, more importantly, what it means. We pride ourselves on insightful and authoritative journalism to help you get to grips with our complex world. If you like what you hear, you can listen to all of the stories in the paper read aloud in our app. Here's one of my colleagues to tell you what's coming up this week.
2: Thanks, Zannie. It's Thursday, October the 24th. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist. For our cover this week, we examine Elizabeth Warren's plan for American capitalism. The Democratic frontrunner for president in 2020 has a remarkable personal story, and in an era of rule by tweet, she's an unashamed policy wonk. Plenty of her ideas are good, but her economic plan is not the answer to America's problems. And you can listen to more analysis of Senator Warren's plans on Money Talks, our weekly podcast about business, economics and finance. Next, we also look at Russia's increasing influence in Africa. Vladimir Putin may want Africans to think of Russia as a great power, but there's a danger of conflating the brazenness of Russia with its actual influence. And finally, the initial public offering process is under fire again after WeWork, an office rental firm, cancelled a listing that bankers once valued as high as $104 billion. Venture capitalists are livid, even though they are as much to blame for mispricing the unicorns as Wall Street. That's just a sample of the stories on offer in the paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do on our app. So please go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's economist.com slash radio offer. First up, Elizabeth Warren's government-heavy master plan contains much to worry about.
3: Elizabeth Warren is remarkable. Born into a struggling family in Oklahoma, she worked her way up to become a star law professor at Harvard. As a single mother in the 1970s, she broke with convention by pursuing a full-time career. In an era of rule by tweet, she is an unashamed policy wonk who is now a frontrunner to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020. Polls suggest that, in a head-to-head contest, more Americans would vote for her than for Donald Trump. But as remarkable as Ms. Warren's story is the sheer scope of her ambition to remake American capitalism. She has an admirably detailed plan to transform a system she believes is corrupt and fails ordinary people. Plenty of her ideas are good. She is right to try to limit giant firms' efforts to influence politics and gobble up rivals. But at its heart, Her plan reveals a systematic reliance on regulation and protectionism. As it stands, it is not the answer to America's problems. Ms. Warren is responding to an enduring set of worries. America has higher inequality than any other big, rich country. While jobs are plentiful, wage growth is strangely subdued. In two-thirds of industries, big firms have become bigger, allowing them to crank out abnormally high profits and share less of the pie with workers. For Ms. Warren, this is personal. Her parents endured the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression in the 1930s, and later her father's career collapsed because of illness. As a scholar, she specialised in examining how bankruptcy punishes those who fall on hard times— The idea that animates her thinking is of a precarious middle class, preyed on by big business and betrayed by politicians feasting on the corporate dollar in Washington, D.C. Some Republican and Wall Street critics claim that Ms. Warren is a socialist. She is not. She does not support the public ownership of firms or political control of the flow of credit. Instead, She favours regulations that force the private sector to pass her test of what it is to be fair. The scope of these regulations is jaw-dropping. Banks would be broken up, split between commercial and investment banking. Tech giants such as Facebook would be dismembered and turned into utilities. In energy, there would be a ban on shale fracking, which, for oil markets, would be a bit like shutting down Saudi Arabia— a phase-out of nuclear power, and targets for renewables. Private health insurance would be mostly banned and replaced by a state-run system. Private equity barons would no longer be shielded by limited liability. Instead, they would have to honour the debts of the firms in which they invest. This sectoral re-regulation would complement sweeping economy-wide measures— a 15% Social Security levy on those earning over $250,000, a 2% annual wealth tax on those with assets over $50 million, a 3% tax for those worth over $1 billion, and a 7% extra levy on corporate profits. Meanwhile, the state would loosen owners' control of companies— All big firms would have to apply for a license from the federal government, which could be revoked if they repeatedly failed to consider the interests of employees, customers and communities. Workers would elect two-fifths of board seats. Ms. Warren is no xenophobe, but she is a protectionist. New requirements for trade deals would make them less likely. Her government would actively manage the value of the dollar. Ms. Warren champions some ideas this newspaper supports. One reason for inequality is that lucrative corners of the economy are locked up by insiders. She is right to call for a vigorous antitrust policy, including for tech firms, zero tolerance of cronyism, and an end to non-compete agreements that limit workers' ability to gain higher wages and switch jobs. Given inflation... A plan to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 over five years may be a reasonable way of helping poorer workers. The rich should indeed pay more tax, although we think the practical path is to close loopholes, such as a perk for capital gains known as carried interest, and to raise inheritance taxes, not a wealth tax and while a carbon levy is our preferred way to fight climate change, her plan for clean energy targets would make a big difference. However, if the entire Warren plan were enacted, America's freewheeling system would suffer a severe shock. Roughly half the stock market and private equity-owned firms would be broken up, undergo heavy re-regulation, or see activities abolished and over time, Ms. Warren's agenda would entrench two dubious philosophies about the economy that would sap its vitality. The first is her faith in government as benign and effective. Government is capable of doing great good, but like any big organization, it is prone to incompetence, capture by powerful insiders, and Kafkaesque indifference to the plight of the ordinary men and women Ms. Warren most cares about. When telecoms firms and airline companies were heavily regulated in the 1970s, they were notorious for their stodginess and inefficiency. Ms. Warren's signature achievement is the creation in 2011 of a body to protect consumers of financial services. It has done good work, but has unusual powers— has at times been heavy-handed and has become a political football. The other dubious philosophy is a vilification of business. She underrates the dynamic power of markets to help middle-class Americans, invisibly guiding the diverse and spontaneous actions of people and firms, moving capital and labor from dying industries to growing ones, and innovating at the expense of lazy incumbents. Without that creative destruction, no amount of government action can raise long-term living standards. Many presidents have taken positions in the primaries that they pivoted away from as their party's nominee. If Ms. Warren were to make it to the Oval Office in fifteen months' time, she would be constrained by the courts, the states, and probably the Senate. The immense size and depth of America's economy— means that no individual, not even the one sitting in the White House, can easily change its nature. Nonetheless, Ms. Warren's government-heavy master plan contains much to worry about. She needs to find more room for the innovative and dynamic private sector that has always been at the heart of American
0: prosperity. Capital One has a fresh take on banking.
2: Next, Russia's influence in Africa is not as important as its spin
1: suggests. In October 2017, Faustin Archange Touadera was in a difficult spot. The President of the Central African Republic, or CAR, one of the world's poorest and most fragile countries, was struggling to quell a dozen or so militias that threatened his regime. A year earlier, France had withdrawn troops from its former colony. An arms embargo meant that the government of CAR could not equip its own soldiers. Short of options, Mr. Tuadera did what desperate African leaders sometimes do. He turned to President Vladimir Putin of Russia. The impact was swift. Within weeks, a mining and a security company linked to Yevgeny Prigozhin Mr Putin's crony, were reportedly registered in Bangui, the capital. That December, Russia successfully lobbied for the arms embargo to be lifted. Soon after, it dispatched weapons and mercenaries to shore up Mr Tuadera's regime, as well as a former GRU, military intelligence operative, to act as the president's security advisor. A few months later, Lobby Invest, the mining company, won concessions to look for gold and diamonds. When three Russian journalists tried to investigate their country's shady operations in CAR, they turned up dead in July 2018. Mr Putin would like to have the world believe that his country's approach to the continent is about more than chicanery. To that end, on October 23rd and 24th, Russia's president hosted more than 40 African leaders at a first-of-its-kind summit in Sochi. As at the triennial summit of African leaders hosted by China, which the Sochi summit aped, there was much talk of trade and investment. We have a lot to offer to our African friends, said Mr Putin, ahead of the event. But Russia's actions in CAR and in other weak states capture the nature of its operations in Africa much better than the rhetoric of Mr Putin, who overstates his country's influence. Russia has a long history of intervening in Africa. Its volunteers fought the British in the Second Boer War. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union inculcated post-colonial leaders in Marxism-Leninism and backed liberation movements in countries such as Angola, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau, often as part of proxy wars with the West. Russia's ambitions shrank after the Soviet Union collapsed. But over the past decade, and especially after America and the European Union imposed sanctions on Russia related to its annexation of Crimea in 2014, the Kremlin has viewed Africa as an increasingly important arena. Since 2015, a dozen African leaders have visited Russia. From 2006 to 2018, Russia's total trade with sub-Saharan Africa increased by 336%. It is the largest arms exporter to the continent, accounting for 39% of deliveries in 2013-17 many from Russia to Algeria. Judged by the displays at Sochi, more will soon be on the way. I didn't know it would be a gun show, says a Mauritanian businessman surveying the hall. There was weaponry all around, helicopters, tanks and missiles to shoot at helicopters and tanks. A few leaders took selfies next to the caches only Ivory Coast's hot chocolate stand attracted as much attention. Russia does not just supply arms, however. In several countries, it has become deeply involved in internal affairs. These engagements reflect the defining theme of Russia's Africa policy, opportunism. One of Mr Putin's skills is an ability to spot openings presented by a mix of fragile states and a distracted West. Once it has identified an opportunity, the Kremlin looks to increase its influence and to make money for cronies who operate on its licence. Ideally, these moves can be done at low cost, with high returns. CAR is the emblematic example of this approach. For an estimated cost of just 5 million euros, that's 5.6 million dollars, Mr Putin's cronies gained access to minerals, provided jobs for mercenaries, also allegedly controlled by Mr Prigozhin, and tested out their tactics for interfering in the politics of other countries, a speciality of Mr Prigozhin, who was placed under sanctions by America for allegedly meddling in its election in 2016. But CAR is far from the only case. In Madagascar, Russian operatives allegedly helped at least six of the 36 candidates in the presidential election in 2018. In Zimbabwe, Russians advised the ruling ZANU-PF party before elections last year, and Kremlin-linked firms have signed mining and fertiliser deals. Western diplomats believe Russia tried to sway elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo in favour of a candidate chosen by the former president, Joseph Kabila. And in Guinea, which supplies Rusal, a Russian aluminium firm with 27% of its bauxite, Russia is supporting efforts by President Alpha Conde to defy the constitution and run for a third term. Another surge of support is beginning in Mozambique. Following a visit by Felipe Nyusi, the country's president, to Russia in August, Russian hardware and advisors have been spotted by intelligence analysts in Cabo Delgado province, near to where Rosneft, a Russian energy company, has gas contracts. The advisers are believed to have been asked to subdue an insurgency that threatens both Rozhnev's interests and those of the corrupt ruling party, Frelimo. All of this activity is worrying some in the West. In a speech last year outlining America's Africa strategy, John Bolton, the former national security adviser to President Donald Trump, called Russia and China great power competitors on the continent, which are keen to gain a competitive advantage over the United States. But there is a danger of conflating the brazenness of Russia with its actual influence. In nearly every area, it lags behind America, the EU and China. China got the juiciest bits. Russia was left to mop up the leftovers, says Alexander Gabuev. Russia's leading expert on China. A closer look reveals Russia's limits. Its favoured candidates did not win in Madagascar or Congo. Its attempts to prop up Omar al-Bashir, Sudan's former dictator, failed earlier this year. And it could not get a nuclear energy deal with South Africa, despite wooing the allegedly corrupt former president, Jacob Zuma. There is also less to Russia's military efforts than meets the eye. Ahead of the Sochi summit, Mr. Putin claimed more than 30 military cooperation deals with African states. But many amount to little more than the odd training exercise. African states often keep their options open, striking deals with America and China as well. Both have a base in Djibouti, a small East African country. Russia, though, does not, despite years of lobbying. American pressure on the local government has kept it out. There is a similar gap between rhetoric and reality when it comes to economic deals. In 2018, the total value of Russia's trade with sub-Saharan Africa was $5 billion, less than Turkey, Singapore or Thailand. American and Chinese trade was worth $120 billion and $35 billion, respectively. Many deals that are announced at lavish signing ceremonies by Rosneft or Rosatom, Russia's state nuclear company, never end up happening. It offers remarkably little that African states actually need, explains Paul Stronsky of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace a think-tank. For all the pageantry on show in Sochi, Russia remains a bit-player in Africa. It is influential among beleaguered leaders with few options. But as more and more countries scramble to engage with the continent, its leaders see Russia as one of many suitors. Mr Putin may want Africans to think of Russia as a great power, but a summit does not make it so.
2: And finally, IPOs are a racket, but try finding something better.
4: Margaret Thatcher, a grocer's daughter from Grantham, knew a thing or two about selling. The privatisation of British Gas, or BG, in 1986, on the back of an advertising slogan, if you see Sid, tell him, raised £9 billion, that's $13 billion, which at the time was the biggest ever initial public offering, or IPO. It wasn't just Sid who lit it up. The Thatcher government hired Goldman Sachs to hawk BG to American investors. As privatisation spread, investment banks such as Goldman used a new technique called book building to ramp up enthusiasm. Rather than only tapping retail investors, they allocated blocks of shares to money managers, such as Fidelity Investments, increasing the pool of capital available. Since then, the American IPO model has conquered the world. It has done so despite a sometimes tawdry reputation. The nadir in America was the dot-com boom in 1999 to 2000, when deliberately underpriced IPOs rocketed on their first day of trading, bankers doled out hot IPOs to executives in exchange for underwriting business, and new shares were spun and flipped for profit. This year, the IPO process is under fire again. WeWork, an office rental firm, cancelled a listing that bankers once valued as high as $104 billion. Now SoftBank, its main backer, will throw it a $9.5 billion lifeline that values the firm's equity at a puny $8 billion. Shares of Uber and Lyft, two ride-hailing companies, have slumped since their IPOs, a sure sign of overpricing. Meanwhile, Beyond Meat, a trendy vegan food maker, soared by 163% on day one, suggesting the reverse. In Silicon Valley, venture capitalists are livid, even though they are as much to blame for mispricing the unicorns as Wall Street, but investment banks like Goldman and Morgan Stanley are contrite, and asking themselves whether the traditional IPO, however lucrative for them, remains the best means to bring tech firms to market. This is healthy. Scrutiny of IPOs is long overdue. To critics, they are a classic case of cronyism. Even fans such as Ann Sherman of DePaul University in Chicago call them legalised bribery. The challenge, though, is to find anything better. Most of today's IPOs start with a roadshow in which executives of the firm going public and underwriters hit the road or take private jets in order to catch the attention of investors and elicit orders from them. The process is part of building the book. For the underwriter, the trick is to find an IPO price that satisfies the company but also stimulates buying, providing a pop on the first day of trading. The trouble with the pop, though, is that it represents money left on the table that should by rights belong to the company's sellers, not its buyers. Jay Ritter of the University of Florida says that during the past decade, the underpricing of IPOs in America left a whopping $39 billion on that table, or about 14% of the total sum raised. In theory, bankers have an incentive to minimize that amount because they earn fees amounting to as much as 7% of the value of the IPO. In practice, though, they often underprice the listing to favour big investor clients. Money managers pay higher trading commissions, or soft dollars, he says, in exchange for access to the hottest listings. That makes IPOs look like a racket, but the rub is that until now companies have mostly turned a blind eye. One reason, acknowledges Mr. Ritter, is psychological. The sellers usually pocket such a windfall from an IPO that they do not fret about how much more they could have made if it were priced optimally. But there is a bigger reason. Except for the best-known firms, the alternatives are seen as too much of a gamble. Other than book-building IPOs, firms have two more ways of going public—auctioning shares to the highest bidders, as Google did in 2004, or selling shares directly, without underwriters, and without raising capital, a route taken recently by Spotify, a music streaming service, and Slack, an office communications firm. Notwithstanding Google's success, auctions are unpopular. Ms. Sherman and two fellow academics, Ravi Jagannathan and Andre Giani, have studied IPO auctions in at least 25 countries, including Singapore, Taiwan, Turkey and France, and found that they were abandoned in virtually all of them. In Japan, they were mandatory in 1989-97. to 97. They vanished soon after issuers became free to choose. Direct listings are now creating a buzz in Silicon Valley. Some big firms favour them because they already have lots of cash on their balance sheets and have no need to raise more through an IPO. Furthermore, direct listings do not require an underwriter, so are cheaper, and allow the sales of piles of shares quickly. Investors are attracted by higher levels of liquidity than in an IPO. Banks are less keen. The fee pool is lower. Only Goldman and Morgan Stanley have shown much interest. Shares of Spotify and Slack have performed poorly since listing, which has been discouraging. Airbnb, a lettings agency, is considering a direct listing next year. The approach has yet to prove its worth. The chief merit of book-building is that, as Ms. Sherman puts it, it allows issuers, in effect, to buy attention from the market, hence the legalised bribery. Money managers know that if they appear at the road show and give reliable feedback, they will win for themselves a share of the IPO but it has never been easy to value companies. According to Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor, as far back as Cicero's time, buying new shares or partes in ventures fulfilling government contracts was seen as a gamble that risk-averse ancient Romans avoided. Richard Siller of New York University's Stern School of Business notes that America's first public offering in 1781 of the Bank of North America flopped. A decade later, that of the Bank of the United States surged like a hot stock. The values of both were determined by the backdrop of the time, the Revolutionary War and its buoyant aftermath. However much anyone re-engineers the process, valuing companies will always be a shot in the dark. Thanks for
2: listening to Editor's Picks. You can listen to the whole issue read aloud every week in our app or by visiting economist.com slash audio edition. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home addition. Maybe even an addition on that addition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.